Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners. Molly here. Can you believe there are only a few more weeks of 2022 left? This week, Clarissa and I interviewed Dr. Jennifer Reed, MD, psychiatrist, otherwise known as the Reflective Doc. But before I tell you all about our guest and why I think you should listen to this episode, I have a few reminders for you. First, please help us get to 350,000 downloads by January 1st. We're so close to reaching our goal, and we're currently sitting at 341,000 downloads. Remember to share these episodes with acquaintances, friends, family members, your medical professionals, and anyone else you think might enjoy the show or may find something they're looking for. We have 104 episodes to choose from. Next, Clarissa and I want to remind you that Sweet Sobriety is hosting a cravings workshop by Jennifer Bradley. This workshop addresses why we have cravings, how to tell the difference between physical and psychological cravings, and what can be done about them. In this workshop, you're going to learn the difference between cravings, hunger, and insulin spikes, the myths of willpower, how to name your cues, triggers, and temptation zones. You're going to learn about supplements and food substitutions that might be right for you. You're going to learn the difference between those cravings and how to build coping skills for immediate and future cravings when they pop up. You're also going to receive downloadable workshops or worksheets, or rather, wheels of emotions, um, some sugar names and substitutions. Uh, weekly journal prompts, daily practices you can do at home, um, a recovery maintenance and safety plan. And here's the deal. If you join, you get four live one-hour weekly support meetings with replay. The workshop is $50 US and will be on Saturdays at 12 p.m. Eastern or 5 p.m. UK starting January 7th. You'll receive the first week's lesson on December 31st. Perfect timing. Okay, let's get to our guest. Dr. Jennifer Reed is a psychiatrist, award-winning educator, writer, and podcast host in Philadelphia. She trained at Columbia University and UCLA and is on the clinical faculty at University of Pennsylvania. She's married to a physician and a proud mom to two boys. She grew up in rural North Dakota in a family of physicians and studied zoology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. You all have something unique to say, and the world will be better for having heard it. After leaving academia to start a private practice, she wanted to find a way to reach a broader audience with practical, evidence-based mental health information. In addition to her private practice, she writes and podcasts as the Reflective Doc. She is also a regular contributor to Psychology Today, Doximity, and Kevin MD, and a frequent podcast guest. In today's episode, Dr. Reed shares her personal and professional journey to becoming the Reflective Doc, what is anxiety, symptoms, and treatments for anxiety, sleep deprivation and insomnia. We talk about alcohol, cannabis, melatonin, and sleep. We talk about circadian rhythms, naps, and caffeine, seasonal affective disorder, the relationship between anxiety and procrastination, establishing safety, clients and recovery, what's next for Dr. Reed, and our signature question. Welcome, Dr. Reed. 
thank you again so much for being with us today, Dr. Reed. I am just so excited to get this interview started. So can you just start us off with maybe letting us know a little bit about your personal and professional journey to becoming a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, your podcast, you know, what were your best hopes um, like in, in where you are today? Like, how did you get there? Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. This is really fun. So I grew up actually in rural North Dakota in a small town. And my father was a physician there, general practice physician. And my grandfather, my maternal grandfather had been before me. So it was sort of in the blood and something that was always of interest to me over the years. I actually started in internal medicine. I matched into internal medicine and just found myself kind of not as engaged in some of the algorithms of care that, that, you know, really required and wanted to understand patient stories a little bit better. I think looking back, I've always been a big bookworm. And so it was sort of understanding their stories and how they got to this place. How were they responding to illness? I think was most interesting. So I was fortunate enough to switch into psychiatry and it's just been really lovely since I love the field. I think it's always growing and changing and so exciting, especially neuroscience research right now. And then I was at an academic center and I decided to go into private practice as many do wanted more time with patients, wanted to do psychotherapy as a psychiatrist, which there aren't too many of us that do, maybe some more in, in the younger generations. And during COVID had to shift everything to home. And really my practice was somewhat limited by the fact that I had two kids to take care of and that were like schooling at home for a brief time. That was sort of a comical failure, but Wanted to, you know, share some of this information more broadly because I just couldn't see patients one-on-one -on -one in the numbers that I felt were necessary and just hearing in the news about so much trouble, especially with anxiety, insomnia, depression, like areas that I specialize in. And so the podcast was a way to do that. It's like a really egalitarian way to put the information out there. No one has to pay me anything. They don't have to like go through all the hoops to get scheduled with a provider. They could just learn some skills, learn some really practical information about mental health and same with the writing. I think that's really my mission and has been really fun to be able to share that information and get it out there and have people respond or even share with me their own experiences or maybe how it prompted them to kind of get a little bit more support or care. So my hope with the, the podcast and the writing is that people out there won't feel quite as alone in their symptoms and that they'll know that treatment exists and maybe get some skills to kind of get them a little ways down the road, but perhaps connect with a provider if necessary. So that's sort of the, the short, long, short answer. <laughs> Great. Well, I know one of the things you specialize in is anxiety. So can you explain for our listeners, like what is anxiety and how do we recognize if we are experiencing it? And then what are some of the typical treatments and what have you found to be some of the best ways that we can treat anxiety? Mm -hmm. Well, anxiety essentially is a necessary emotion for us. It actually has been adaptive for us over eons because we need to be able to respond when we're under threat or there's something dangerous or something that's not good for us or safe for us. We need to be able to have this response. And it's actually a very old kind of reaction or reflex that we have to feel anxiety. And I tell patients like it really is part of the brain that we can't always directly talk to kind of a deeper, older part of the brain that just responds with protection mode, you know, the fight or flight kind of, I'm going to get away from this situation. So anxiety is just a way to focus our attention on a potential threat. And we do need some of that. The trouble is when it gets over the top, think like a bell curve, when we start to get into the part where there's so much anxiety and we're starting to perceive threats, even in pretty benign environments, 
or we're kind of making up our own threats, which is, you know, those what if questions, which I think is a really great red flag for anxiety. If you're saying what if, it's almost always going to be an anxious thought because you're projecting forward to something you're worried about or that's negative. You're imagining this really negative future and that can kind of go really go overboard for a number of reasons. Certainly there's a genetic component. If you have family members, classically, you know, my mom was really a worrier. She was always saying, be careful or like, call me as soon as you get there, these kinds of things. So certainly there can be a genetic component. We're learning more about epigenetics. So like things that happen during your lifetime that can actually change your genetic makeup and affect how you respond to things and, and your amount of anxiety and then life stressors. So we're talking COVID, you know, we're talking politics right now. We're talking the pressures that social media put on all of us. And those things all can really amp up our, our feeling of anxiety. So the treatments that I tend to use, and the nice thing about you know anxiety is that there, there are a variety of subtypes, and I can talk through each of those a bit. And they each do have sort of a more specific type of therapy that can be beneficial for them. OCD, for example, obsessive compulsive disorder, we can talk about. It really has a very specific type of cognitive behavioral therapy that's effective for treatment. And so the more people just know about it, they know what exists, what it is, and then what the specific treatment is, which we call exposure and response prevention prevention, the better they can just address it right away. And they're not maybe even working with a therapist in more general ways, talking about their stressors, talking about their day, but noticing that their obsessive thoughts or compulsive behaviors like hand-washing, counting, checking, even compulsive thoughts that they're trying to, to change, those can start to lessen over time with truly, you know, focused therapy. So I do think cognitive behavioral therapy and its subtypes can be really effective for patients. Medications, I mean, as an MD, I do prescribe medications. And let me tell you, when it comes to anxiety, treating patients with the SSRIs, the serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, I've really seen be life-changing for people who are struggling so much with anxiety. They certainly aren't for everyone. And I never push a med on anyone. It's always, here's an option. And the things I think medications can provide, if someone, it's so severe that they're starting to constrict their life considerably, that's where medication might be able to help them a little bit more quickly start to re-engage because we know that anxiety triggers avoidance. When you feel anxious, you just want to get away from whatever is causing that anxiety, but avoiding over time, whether it's by leaving a situation or by procrastinating because the task itself makes us anxious in general, over time, the anxiety really increases. So we're trying to help them kind of manage that. And the medication can make those really scary thoughts less sticky, help us be able to kind of get those thoughts to decrease and not be as intense and even can decrease some of the compulsive behaviors, whether it's, you know, compulsive you know, binge eating or other compulsive issues with OCD or even other uses of different substances, the medications can really help to lessen the intensity and frequency of those thoughts and feelings. And so I never want to totally rule it out. I, I get concerned when there are messages like these never work or these always work. Of course, neither of those are true. But I have seen in many, you know, hundreds, thousands probably of situate of people I've seen over the years where it's really made a huge difference in their ability to feel like themselves again, not to feel drugged, not to feel different, to literally take off this dark overlay of anxiety or depression or insomnia and feel like themselves again. And I think that's a really important point. So is there anything, you know, I'm a big fan of whatever tool works for anybody and, and certainly I don't prescribe, but I am a mental health provider. And so, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, my clients are kind of looking at the whole picture and medications 
are a necessary tool for some, not all. But so for those folks who are on medications, for example, the SSRIs, is there anything that they can be doing, you know, whether it be lifestyle choices, you know, foods that they're eating, other substances that they may be ingesting? Like, what are some things that we should or shouldn't be doing in the spirit of helping that medication, like help us? Absolutely. And there are many people who just, they decide they do not want to take a medication. And that also is absolutely fine. And I have those in my practice and we work in these different, different strategies. I think we're learning more and more about other things that we can add in that really are helpful. A lot of different categories. So certainly exercise, and we're always telling you know people as far as how do we balance exercise and how do we find a way to kind of release some of the anxiety and that anxious energy that can happen, finding exercise that people really enjoy, and also being careful that we're not starting to do that obsessively, which can be a concern. Meditation and mindfulness, the more we're you know studying it, the more we're really seeing hard data. And in my field, it's always, you know, what does the data say, as you guys, I'm sure are also looking at, it's just really encouraging for targeting anxiety and that these are simple things that people can do in their own home free. You know, you can listen to different podcasts or different um, meditations, or you can even just practice it yourself. I have some of my patients do like a sensory, you know, going through the five senses kind of a um, meditation of, okay, let's just, you know, close your eyes for a minute, find somewhere restful to sit, and then just go through and imagine like, okay, what am I hearing? For me right now, it's leaf blowers. I don't know if you can hear them. And what am I seeing and smelling, right? And, and tasting and touching just as a way to kind of connect with ourselves and our breath and take a pause. Because if you're being mindful and you're living in this current moment, it is impossible really to be worrying about the future because you're in the now, right? You're in this in, in this moment. And it's hard to really regret or feel badly or ruminate on the past like we, we see in depression as well. So that can be really helpful. Diet, where increasingly there's a new field of nutritional psychiatry, you know, which isn't really new. I mean, food has always been so important, but as far as us studying it and calling it that, you know, with, with some hubris. But I think that really watching out for foods that can be inflammatory, you know, we want to watch for obviously the same stuff we've been hearing forever, you know, fatty, high, really high fat, fried foods, fast foods, unprocessed, like white flour, rice, things like that can really increase inflammation. And we worry that that, you know, more and more are seeing the link between that and depression or anxiety, you know, not having enough sort of vegetables or really nutrient rich foods in our, in our body. I know you guys are really talking with people about certain triggers that really are not good foods for them. And many of those are in that category where there is going to be an increased craving and also it's going to increase inflammation and put them at risk of some of these mood symptoms. So, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, you know, lean meats, certainly in nutritional psychiatry, when we're looking at things like vitamin B12 or iron, we do look at, at different meats, at different animal, you know, products. There are people who are vegetarian or vegan in some cases might need some supplementation to kind of make sure that their mood or anxiety, you know, are not affected by that. So people who are, especially a vegan diet, make sure you're maybe meeting with a nutritionist or talking to someone about some of those supplements. Those are some of the main ones that I talk to people about. I think that increasingly there are so many opportunities, you know, with my podcast, but so many people are putting really excellent podcasts out there making sure that people have, you know, the background and training, you're checking their, you know, their degree and make sure that they know what they're sharing. But I think there are a lot of different ways to, you know, be able to learn and work on some of these processes, even if you are struggling to connect with a therapist or you know, can't afford to do so, for example. 
Yeah. And I know something that you also really specialize is sleep. And can you talk a little bit about how sleep ties into these symptoms? Like what is the function of sleep? How much should I be getting? What is the difference between sleep deprivation and insomnia? And do you have some steps we can take for individuals who have trouble sleeping? Absolutely. And these numbers are just incredibly high. I mean, we're saying 70 million Americans with, with some insomnia issues. So to start with, I mean, when it comes to sleep, it's one of our most powerful drives. We really can't resist sleep. In fact, people can really resist eating, as we know, in really difficult circumstances and sad situations in a way that we just cannot resist sleep. Our brain will take some sleep when it needs it in these little micro sleeps during the day. It's a really powerful drive. I mean, you think about it from evolutionary standpoint, why are we unconscious essentially for seven to eight hours every night? That puts us at risk. We're not gathering food. We're not protecting ourselves. We're not procreating, et cetera. So it's such a powerful thing. And we are realizing more and more how many different parts of the body sleep, adequate amounts of sleep really help maintain and how much those can be disrupted when we're not getting adequate amounts of sleep. So sleep deprivation, I'd say fewer than six hours a night in, in a regular night, right? So ideally I want someone closer to seven, you know, between seven and eight, some people prefer nine. And I think that's still very much within the, the normal range. So if there's sleep deprivation, meaning this fewer number of hours, whether they're working two jobs and going to bed really late, or they have kids that are keeping them awake, or they just don't have the sleep opportunity that can affect certainly metabolism. It changes our hormones so that we crave foods that are going to give us a quick boost of energy, right? And so sugars and you know sugary foods and other foods that aren't good for us. It actually can slow down our metabolism. It makes us it harder for us to process food as we take it in and really create and use it for fuel, use it for healthy fuel, right? Which is what food really needs to be. It can affect our immune system, worsen our immune system if we don't get enough sleep. It affects, certainly affects inflammation. And like I said, that can affect kind of everything else. And there's really a bi-directional relationship between sleep and mental health issues. So, you know, poor sleep certainly can increase depression risk, increase irritability, increase risk of mania in patients with bipolar disorder, and really can make it more difficult to get treatment and heal from post-traumatic stress disorder. Sleep is really a time where we seem to be able to process memories, including traumatic experiences or memories. So if we're not getting good sleep, it's much harder for us to heal from that and be able to process and move past trauma. So, so many different things that can be affected there. Insomnia is a little different. Insomnia is kind of unsatisfying or poor quality sleep. So maybe you are getting seven hours, but you're getting it while you're in bed for 10 and you're, you know, it's rough sleep and you wake up and then you fall back to sleep again and you wake up again, or it's hard to fall asleep. And so insomnia really is sort of either early insomnia, trouble falling asleep, middle insomnia is difficulty staying asleep. And then late insomnia, which is waking up earlier than you'd prefer, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're getting, you have sleep deprivation. And so one thing I do talk to a lot of patients about is like, yes, your sleep isn't the quality you wanted or the timing you wanted. It doesn't mean that you have your sleep deprived and all these health outcomes are happening. So let's really address some of the anxious thoughts that are coming up. When you wake up, say at two in the morning and you're lying in bed, there are different thoughts that can emerge then, right? For me, it's like, oh, it's my thinking time. And I know I'm going to fall asleep again because like sleep is such a powerful drive and like, it's going to be fine. Because I've learned over time, that's really important to do. I can't always do that perfectly. Of course, I'm a human and I have kids and I worry, but there are other people who wake up and say, oh my gosh, I'm not going to get adequate sleep. Tomorrow's going to be a disaster. The next night's going to be bad again. I'm never going to be able to sleep. I'm such a bad sleeper, et cetera, et cetera. And so we really work on some of those, those cognitions or sort of some cognitive restructuring to 
try and shift to a little bit less kind of anxious or really worried version of what it means to be missing some sleep or not having good sleep. The gold standard for sleep for insomnia in particular is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And insomnia is one of those areas where I'm not crazy about medications and where I think they are overused because they're a, a quicker fix. And certainly, you know, providers are trying to help in limited time, but I think there's no medication that truly mimics our normal sleep architecture or kind of the normal patterns our brain goes through during sleep. And so any of them can have an effect. They can be used and I think can be used effectively for short-term and really getting people back on track, but I really don't want them on them for months, years, because I don't think that's, that's good for them. So it's one of those areas where I'm always talking about the risks of the meds. I do prescribe absolutely, especially when there's concurrent anxiety, depression, and I need to be trying to get that under control and their sleep better so they can heal. But in general, if they're able to do some CBT for insomnia, you know, working with a therapist, there are different online programs, there are apps, there's one through the VA that's free, and they can really make some positive change there with their sleep. One, some of the key things in there, just briefly, I'll cover, and I have some of those, you know, I talked about that on the podcast some, is not spending extra time in, in bed if you're not sleeping well, because we're trying to condition the brain to think, okay, I'm in bed. I'm getting good sleep. This is where I sleep. This is this wonderful place for sleep. Not like this is where I lay awake and stare at the ceiling and worry. So if people are in, you know, are in bed and wake up and are awake for maybe more than 20 or 30 minutes to actually get up out of bed and go somewhere else that's quiet and restful, maybe read, nothing too stimulating, and then try to get back in bed again when they're sleepy. Because we really want as much time as possible in bed to be asleep so that the brain is really associating those two things and not associating it with trouble sleeping. Whereas someone who gets into bed and starts increasing their time. So maybe they're only getting seven hours, but they're in bed for, for 10 because they're determined to get more sleep. That's a natural tendency we all do, but that's sort of a counterproductive tendency to do. And also I really encourage people, and this is hard too, to keep a consistent wake time, even on the weekends, which I don't like. I would really like to sleep in as much as possible on the weekends. And certainly people do sometimes, but if you're having trouble with sleep, if you're waking up at night, you can't fall asleep keeping a consistent wake time seven days a week is really one of the best things that you can do. Because that big difference in the weekend and weekday, we call it social jet lag. It really is a jet lag because you're sleeping maybe two hours, three hours later than you otherwise would. And your brain and body get really kind of confused by that, right? And since sleep really regulates all of these systems, even throughout our entire day, things can get really messed up. So that was a long and winding answer, but hopefully that kind of answers some of those questions you mentioned. No, I, th I think it's, it's amazing. You know, I've found that sleep has a bi-directional relationship with many things, right? Like you were saying mental health, but also physical health, like not just immune system, but chronic pain. You know, it's like, if it's a, it's, if it's an issue for us, chances are one of the things that we need to look at is sleep, which is so funny. I mean, I think it can sound, you know, maybe a little condescending or flippant to folks when, when I start asking about like, Hey, what does your sleep look like? But the truth is, is that that repair, right? Like we need that rest and repair that occurs with sleep. And so if we're not getting enough because we're burning the candle at both ends or, you know, or there is some form of insomnia going on, we do need to address it. And, you know, you brought up something important that I think I would love for, for folks to hear about is you said, okay, if you're lying there in bed and it's 20, 30 minutes, I'd like you to get up and go do something not so stimulating. So what I'm hearing you say is don't go get on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> don't go get on Twitter. I mean, who okay. knows what's going to happen with that company anyway, but no, exactly. Like don't do things, anything that's stimulating, 
even that's fun stimulating, right? Even if you're looking at pictures of like, you know, kittens running around playing with each other or puppies doing silly things. These are things I love on Instagram. That also can be pretty stimulating. So anything worry, caffeine, alcohol, unfortunately has sort of a, I can talk about that in a minute, kind of a bad pattern for sleep, but you know, even a really hot shower right before bed can sometimes be helpful or can really wake you up. Right. So anything that's too stimulating and absolutely social media, you know, lights coming from screens, all those things can certainly interfere people getting on work emails and starting to do work at two in the morning. I mean, just so many different ways that people find to keep themselves awake, unfortunately, even though they very much want to do the opposite. Yeah. Right. They're doing these things in the, in the spirit of this is going to make me sleepy or it's going to pass the time until I'm ready to go back to sleep. But in mm-hmm. fact, it's doing the opposite, but I think it, this is a really great place to talk about that, you know, because we do know with alcohol, it has both a stimulant and a depressant effect and can absolutely interrupt our sleep. But I think more and more with the, you know, legalization of medical and recreational marijuana. I mean, I think that there are so many other substances that maybe we should chit chat a bit about when it comes to sleep, um, because people are using these items or, or substances in the, again, as a sleep aid. And I'm really curious to know, like, what has been your experience with those? Are they actually effective? What precautions should we be taking? Absolutely. Well, let's start with alcohol. I think that's a big one because again, so many people, and certainly during COVID people started to self-medicate a bit more with alcohol. It helped them get to sleep. It helped them with anxiety. The, The trouble is, is that yes, it is a sedative. And so it can help people fall asleep. The trouble is, is as we metabolize it, the breakdown products or metabolites can create anxiety. Actually, they're quite stimulating and and can really increase anxiety. And the chemical aspect of alcohol can interfere with that sleep architecture I talked about earlier. It can make it much harder for us to enter into the deep stages of sleep, which are the most restorative, the most helpful for, you know, storing memory and really feeling rested. And so you're in a little bit lighter sleep. So people who've maybe had, you know, a bunch of drinks and then slept for like, I slept for 10 hours and yet I still feel terrible, right? That's because it's not quality sleep that you're able to get with alcohol. And then when people work to abstain from alcohol, they can have a period of insomnia lasting maybe six months to even a year. And so if that's not adequately treated, I think understandably, they're trying to find some way to relieve their suffering and they may start using alcohol again or other substances. So we really do people a disservice in, you know, for treating substance use issues if we're not adequately managing sleep, because it can be so miserable, so much suffering to not be able to sleep at night. And then you're just left by yourself in the dark, all alone. You know, even if you have someone bed with you, they're, they're fast asleep. It can be really isolating and really difficult. So cannabis, marijuana, you know, CBD. I think these are all really important. I actually had a great podcast with a researcher at Columbia University who studies cannabis. It was really helpful because what she really explained is there's just one strain of marijuana that's truly used and, and governmentally supported to be used in research. And so we don't know much about any of these other strains that are being grown backyards or grown in different companies and then sold in some of these different dispensaries. I think there are a lot of claims about what they all can provide, but as far as truly having kind of what we look at in in medicine as gold standards, like randomized controlled trials, seeing is this helpful and is this safe? We just don't have that much of that yet. I think there's been you know, there, you know, there have been just a few studies that have shown maybe cannabis or marijuana can help people fall asleep a little faster. 
But in general, that's not a significant number of minutes, right? So it's not like this is some major thing that people can use and otherwise has not really shown that much benefit. And I think the risk of using it, I mean, A, you're not sure exactly what's in there. And if there is the THC, which is the sort of psychoactive aspect that can make people feel high or stoned. And then you have the CBD, which that extracted doesn't tend to have that effect, but can be sometimes helpful for things like anxiety or sleep, but honestly has really not been studied much. And the claims about it are so broad, right? It's in everything. It's on everything. It's like teas and creams and ointments, et cetera. We don't have much data there at all either. There are some data in epilepsy. There was one data, um, one prod, uh, study in psychosis and how CBD might be helpful at pretty high levels, but we don't have much data there either. So I really tell people like, okay, if it's legal and you want to use it recreationally and you enjoy it, like, you know, if you don't, people don't have substance use issue, or if that's not a concern for them, you know, it's not something that I will necessarily say don't do. We do know that regular use can increase rates long-term of anxiety and OCD kinds of symptoms. I think it really confuses our our system when it comes to metabolism, right? The, the munchies and things like that. And also I really worry about teens. I worry about adolescents because the adolescent brain, we're more and more concerned that adding in cannabis, it's sort of messing with our internal endocannabinoid system. It's messing with brain development. And so I really am concerned about regular use, especially in teenagers. In that case, I would say, please don't, you know, don't use that. I'm always talking to my kids about drugs. They're like, mom, like we're in elementary school. I'm like, well, still you need to know. So, you know, I think that that I'm a little mixed on it. I'm not apps. I'm not anti, and I think it has potential. And that's what this research uh, scientist I spoke with said, there's potential. We just don't have the, the data yet. As far as other substances, melatonin is used a lot for sleep. And the data on that is really that it might be best for, you know, as we age, as we get into our 60s, 70s, 80s, we kind of have a decline in like the strength of our circadian signal, the signal that says it's bedtime and it's wake time. And so melatonin can help strengthen that in those people. It also can be helpful for like shift workers or people who have deal with a lot of jet lag because it is, it's a signal. It's setting the signal. It's kind of amplifying a signal. It's not a sedative. So for someone who's like in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, that doesn't have those patterns of shift work or jet lag, it's not terribly effective in our studies. I don't think it's dangerous. I think it's typically well tolerated. I mean, I want people to talk to their provider about it, but I'm not, I wouldn't say that, you know, don't take it. I just don't know how effective it is. And if they're spending a lot of money on it or, you know, using higher and higher amounts, then we might get into some more side effects, grogginess, headaches, things like that. So, you know, melatonin is obviously really being marketed as well, but I think there are more subsets of people that might do a little bit better with it. I mean, you had mentioned like circadian rhythms, like, is that something at all that you would advocate for with anybody who was trying to improve their sleep, getting that early morning light, you know, on our faces, maybe even the evening, like sundown time. I mean, is that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we, there are lots of influencers that like to talk about it, but I guess I'm more curious to know what, what does the research say? What do you see in an actual medical practice, you know? is that effective? Would it be, would it be helpful for us to nap? I mean, these are things that come up. Yeah. Those are great questions. So, you know, as far as our circadian rhythm, just briefly, really it is, 
as light enters through our eyes, goes through the retina and back to this, this gland called the pineal gland, it releases melatonin. So the light is really what keeps us on track. It kind of keeps us on this 24 hour cycle. They did this crazy study where scientists went into a cave that was pitch black and they measured their wake and sleep cycles. And it was pretty close to what we have in general. It drifted a little. So we know the light kind of keeps us on track with the 24 hour cycle. So it's a really powerful cycle. And it's actually, there's circadian rhythm kind of measurements in cells throughout our body. So if we have a really wonky night of sleep, or I remember when I used to be on call in residency, I would feel so sick the next day, like stomach upset and just kind of queasy. That's because it's throughout, you know, our circadian rhythm is overnight, but it's also during the day, it sort of prepares when it's expecting a meal. It prepares when it's expecting activity. So we can use light and we do use light to help people maybe try and reset their rhythms a bit. Maybe they're extreme night owls and that's just not functional. If they're like trying to go to school or teach or raise a family. And so we might, in trying to shift their bedtime earlier, we do bright light in the morning and we really try to limit night light before bed because we want them to be able to fall asleep sooner. So in addition to the circadian rhythm, there's sort of the sleep pressure, which is a buildup of, in part, a chemical called adenosine. And that sort of builds up over, they think on average, like 16 hours of the day. And once it gets full, then we get sleepy, right? And so when you think about caffeine, guess what that does? It blocks those receptors, but then it wears off and that's still building up. It's not like it eliminates it. It just blocks our our perception of it. So then we have that crash where you just like run out of caffeine, right? So naps can also kind of deplete that, let's say filling that bucket of adenosine, so to speak, in the brain. And so I encourage people if they're having trouble falling asleep at night, not to nap too late, you know, maybe not after noon, for example. If they don't have trouble falling asleep, you know, they can take a brief nap, but generally 20 to 30 minutes. So we're not doing a full deep sleep cycle where you're going into like, you know, that feeling when you've taken too long of a nap and you wake up and you feel like, I don't even know where I am or who I am. Like you feel totally out of it. So I think 20 to 30 minutes is optimal, not too late in the day, because then you're going to kind of drain that sleep pressure and it's going to be harder to fall asleep, but I'm definitely not anti-nap. I mean, you know, kids are always resisting naps. I love naps. Like they are a gift, right? When you have time to take one. So I'm certainly not against naps. And as we age, more and more people are going to probably take a daytime brief nap. But what we don't want is for noticing that that means our falling asleep time at night creeps later and later, for example. And for people who, you know, my father is such a morning person. He wakes up now at like 4 a.m. It's crazy. And he, if I wanted to try and help him stay a little bit, you know, awake past 8 p.m. So my mother doesn't tease him, I would have him, you know, have some light later in the day afternoon, early evening, because light in that case is going to suppress that melatonin release. And it's going to allow him to stay up a little later. So they could like, I don't know, have dinner together or something. She's a night owl, right? We all have kind of this internal clock that's hard to shift, but we can, but you know, we're also trying to work with our own rhythms, right? So if you typically want to go to bed at a certain time, wake at a certain time, ideally you work with that, but sometimes, you know, society doesn't allow us to, to sleep optimally for our own, our own needs, which during COVID, a lot of the teenagers had, were able to shift their sleep schedules. And we saw that that actually improved some insomnia and other sleep parameters in teens. So one of the few silver linings of the COVID uh, <laughs> epidemic, right? What are your thoughts on seasonal affective disorder lamps in terms of use for sleep and mood? I was just curious. 
Absolutely. No, great question too. So, you know, there is the seasonal affective disorder. And I was thinking I should do a podcast on this because I think it is something so many people struggle with. And there's a lot of information out there, some misinformation out there. Really, that is, you know, people typically have depression symptoms as we're getting into the decrease in light. Less so the temperature changes, more so the decrease in light. Again, light is such a powerful force for our brains and for our sleep. And so people can start to have, you know, depressed mood, low mood, low energy actually want to sleep a lot more, want to just like curl up cozy, right? And appetite can increase. People can even crave more kind of carbohydrates and other sort of those kinds of foods. And so there can be weight gain that can creep. So that typically happens in these, you know, as we start to change the light, the time change, and then we get into fall, winter, and then into early summer. I think when things become more severe, that may be where I want to get into a medication discussion, because that certainly can be helpful. And some people even start it preventatively in like October, and then maybe stop it in the spring if they prefer to not be on it year round. Some people just do well year round. They don't notice they're taking it, no side effects. But as far as the lamps that we recommend, absolutely the data on that. There was one study that actually compared it to Prozac for people with depression, and it performed equally. It did work just as well as Prozac for people. And so again, if they don't want meds or they want to try and supplement or add to augment their med effect, definitely a light box. I would say, you know, ideally like a foot, a foot by a foot, perhaps Um, we really want it to be kind of big enough that we're able to see it pretty regularly. Minimum of 10,000 lux. That's the brightness that we want. And ideally, I mean, some of the studies were like 45 minutes to 60 minutes in the morning. That's a long time to ask people to do. I say 30 minutes optimally every morning, if you can sit in front of it and you can do something else, just start, you know, look at it every few seconds, try and kind of get that light right directly into the, the retina. And, you know, blue light, I, I think has not been as well studied. So I would just do kind of the standard, standard light, but it definitely can be helpful to change, shift all those things, lift mood, improve energy, decrease cravings for, you know, carbs and other heavy foods, just in general, kind of get people more, you know, like feeling like themselves again. And so again, they may start it preventatively early or, you know, in the fall or, you know, and then use it into the spring. And I think that can be very effective, relatively inexpensive. There are lots of good options like on, you know, online on different sites and side effect risk is pretty low, maybe mild headaches in some cases, but generally pretty well tolerated. So I do recommend it to a lot of individuals, even who those who don't have necessarily a seasonal pattern, but still are just not getting enough from other treatments for their depression, for example, and that can really be helpful for them. Yeah, I certainly am someone who uses it regularly and found, especially when I was doing some night shifts. Um, But again, you know, I liked it so much. I started using it a little bit too much, (laughs) interrupted my sleep even more because I was like, oh, I feel so energized and I feel so great. And so I just extend the time. So I always say as a cautionary, just make sure you stick to that, you know, max 30, 45 minutes, because it can then be a disruptor rather than to actually help you. I'm also wondering if you can touch on, you mentioned it before, the relationship between procrastination and anxiety and anxiety and procrastination and how it's kind of this cycle. And, you know, do you have some tools or tips for individuals to kind of break that cycle, which can, you know, we have this great idea. We want to really get something done, but then the thought of getting started creates more anxiety. So we put it off and then putting it off creates more anxiety. So what do we do? I'm absolutely guilty of this myself. So I agree. You know, again, it's about avoidance, right? So if something really triggers anxiety in us, we naturally 
take steps to avoid it or take steps to get away from it. I mean, that's just human nature. So we're trying to push against that somewhat, a little bit counterintuitive, but you're right. Then that is procrastination equals avoidance in that situation. When I'm trying to help people with procrastination, I use a lot of the tools that I use in helping someone with attention deficit or ADHD. And that is how do we break down those tasks, right? If there's a particular task that causes a lot of anxiety, maybe it's because what we're writing down is some enormous task and we can't even imagine how we're going to get started. So we literally need to break down that task into kind of bite-sized chunks, right? And then I encourage people to maybe take 10 minutes each morning and sit down and create sort of their to-do list for the day. And really learning how to craft a good to-do list is an art. It's a matter of how do I put things on this checklist that I can truly get done in a reasonable amount of time. And this way I'm building up my success. And when it comes to our brain, it learns by experience. And so the more experience we have that like, I put this to do on my list, I got it done. I checked it off. I felt really good. You get that little release of dopamine because we've done something that we're happy about. And then that feeds going forward. So it's a matter of if you're procrastinating on an activity, exploring some of the feelings around that. What Are there what-if thoughts that are coming up that we could address? And one way I help people address what-if thoughts is by saying is shifting them to an if-then statement. So we're literally trying to get it out of that part of the brain, that sort of ancient part of the brain into the, our frontal lobe that says, how am I going to deal with this? Not like, what if this happens? So, you know, what if I don't do my taxes to, okay, if I don't do my taxes, then it's going to create this headache and I'm going to have to call my accountant and I'm going to have, et cetera, et cetera. How do we shift it into an if-then statement just to kind of get us working on the next steps? So having a to-do list, having manageable chunks, if we're telling ourselves, I need to, like students, I need to write a whole paper today. Obviously, that's not going to work very well. But if it's like, I need to create that outline or I, I'm going to get all my tax receipts together in this amount of time, and then I'm going to reward myself with something. We all need some rewards sometimes, ideally healthy rewards that we're you know not pushing against. Sometimes food is, is used as a reward in a way that's not always helpful, right? Because then we feel guilty about that. So maybe it's, you know, putting on a lovely candle, listening to some music, reading a book that we actually like, looking at some art for a few minutes, you know, petting our, our dog or cat for, you know, something that's just feels it's reinforcing the sense that we've done something well. And now we get to have a moment of, of relaxation or reprieve. So those are some of the things I do to help people, including myself with procrastination when it arises. I love the way you frame it because when I talk to clients, like I'm not a big fan of, of words like procrastination and self-sabotage, you know, those kind of like labels we can get stuck in. And I always just say, listen, your brain just doesn't feel safe. And it sounds like you, like I'm, you know, we're, we think about it very similar and that it is about breaking it down and how can we help you to feel more safe? Would it feel more safe to do something for five, set a timer, do something for five minutes and then go do something else? Like you said, some kind of reward, like maybe you go, maybe for every five minutes, you go and watch five minutes of TikTok or for every five minutes you go and like you said, like go pet your, your favorite pet or, um, put your little, your slippers in the um, dryer and put them on your feet. And wouldn't that feel, you know, delicious. I know nice. <laughs> I'm in Montana and it, it was minus 12 with a minus oh 24 gosh. degree wind chill this morning. So like, that's, that is on my mind. <laughs> so, so I really appreciate, you know, just letting us know like how those things go together. And that makes sense. Again, anxiety is just a signal. Something's not right. Procrastination is just a flavor of the anxiety. Like OCD can just be a flavor of it or even sleep deprivation or um, insomnia maybe not sleep deprivation. Well, maybe sleep deprivation, I guess, if we have anxiety and we're not allowing ourselves to fall asleep because we're afraid of something. But certainly again, these things all tie together. 
you know, so, so thinking about anxiety and and different flavors of it, you know, we work with clients often that in those moments of anxiety or prolonged periods of anxiety, emotional discomfort, angst, whatever we want to call it, we may then have a binge episode or an emotional eating episode in response. And we're really curious to know, like, what are some strategies that you might share with clients that you work with to address those circumstances and help them cope, you know, and not get, not do the behavior that is harming them. Absolutely. I mean, we, we start with really trying to practice self-compassion that look, these activities that you're doing, even though they're not what you want to be doing, are the way that you're trying to get some relief, that you're trying to relieve some suffering. So let's start with some self-compassion. That's not just like, I can't control myself or all these negative critical thoughts that people have, but like, okay, this is what I've been able to do to get through it, to survive, right? To get me to where I am today, but I want to change. So I'm accepting where it's at, but I want to make a change, right? And part, a big step is even just identifying it rather than going from maybe an upsetting conversation with your spouse to a binge, noticing that there is some intervening, there are intervening thoughts, and maybe we can start to try and stretch out the intervening time between feeling a certain emotion and taking a certain action to relieve that emotion. So we start by being able to identify that emotion, because if you don't even notice it's there, it's very hard, right? We talk about automatic thoughts that just take us to a behavior. So it's noticing that it's there, maybe even naming it. Okay. I'm feeling really hurt by that conversation. I'm feeling really scared thinking about what I'm being asked to do in this work environment, right? How do you sit with that for a little bit longer each time? How do we find ways to soothe that aren't that other action we're trying to avoid by identifying the emotion and learning how to sit with it even just a little bit longer each time? Because what we need to learn is that that emotion won't last forever. It's never lasted forever. We know that but there's a feeling that it will, like, this is never going to go away. I'm never going to feel differently. And we know emotions too are just a signal. They signal some response to our environment. They are all temporary, right? None of them are going to stay with you for the rest of your life. So recognizing it's temporary, recognizing these emotions will not overwhelm you. And sometimes they feel like they will, right? Fear, grief. Certainly I've had that feeling where it's like, I just want to clear this out however I can. Being able to learn to just sit with it, tolerate it for a little bit longer each time, I think can really be powerful. And, you know, we also do different types of what we call exposure therapy for say panic disorder. If someone, every time they feel like their heart rate going up a little bit, or they're starting to feel a little bit more short of breath or whatever, some of those trigger symptoms are, we actually evoke those in sessions together and like figure out ways to make them feel whatever that feeling is. So we get creative with this, but like if they feel dizzy and that triggers a panic attack, we literally practice having them spin in their chair, feel dizzy, sit with that feeling and recognize that it's going to, it's going to dissipate. It's not going to last forever. And it's not really threatening, which our brain perceives it as right. And so if the brain perceives an argument or conflict with a partner, for example, which is commonly, I think, you know, interpersonal conflict creates so much risk for things like binging or, or these other behaviors. If we perceive that as dangerous, like any conflict with a partner is dangerous and I need to get rid of this feeling as much as possible, it's really hard to control those behaviors. So we're trying to lessen the, the fear of the threat that even just that emotion evokes for them. And, and again, being compassionate because it may have been adaptive for them to respond this way in the past. They needed to exit an interpersonal situation because the conflict meant it really wasn't safe. But now they're in a different environment, fortunately, we hope, and they're able to tolerate it a bit and they are safe, right? 
Have you experienced clients who have substance use disorder just by addressing, you know, sleep, their anxiety, you know, some of the things we've been talking about today that they've been able to improve their recovery? And and if so, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I mean, I think as we sort of were saying earlier, people find ways to relieve their suffering. And that may be that alcohol becomes a way to manage anxiety and manage sleep problems or insomnia, manage these difficult emotions when they have conflict or don't feel connected or feel alone. And so in helping them to find other ways to manage that, I definitely have had patients, I can think of many that I'm even working with now, that we've been able to really decrease their use of the substances. And in part, we're looking at what their goal is. And for some people, it wasn't full abstinence. We were working on sort of harm reduction. How do we decrease use? And really seen it decrease because they had other tools when they were having trouble with anxiety, when they were having trouble falling asleep, maybe I've treated them with meds. Maybe we've talked through some of those different thoughts, diminish their anxiety somewhat. And then they don't reach for these other ways or these other tools, whether it's, you know, a binge to try and numb things out, whether it's alcohol or drugs to try and numb things out. And these are the things that we really can help people decrease that need. And it's a lot easier to say, for example, if you're full, it's easier to say no to food that's sitting there, not always, but it's easier if you're falling asleep well, maybe you don't think about reaching for a drink because as soon as you get into bed and say goodnight to your partner, you're asleep, right? So I absolutely see changes happen. I think, of course, there are people who need really specialized treatment for some different substances. And there are good medications, for example, for opiate use disorder that we are learning more and more about and getting more of that accessible to people. But I think absolutely addressing these issues, there is this bi-directionality between you know, depression, anxiety, trauma, PTSD, and substance use. And that if we can treat one or the other, the other one tends to get better as well. I just think that's so like hopeful to hear. It's certainly something that I saw for, you know, I don't even know, 15, 17 years in private practice myself, that it always depended on on my clients' goals. But, you know, when we started to address some of these other things, you know, boundaries for relationships, um, addressing, you know, anxiety is so common, which is good and bad news, right? Like it's sad that so many people experience anxiety, but it's good because we have so many interventions for anxiety. And so when we could address those things, sleep, what we're putting into our body, whether it be food or other substances, some of those compulsions or even like the desire to self-medicate, whatever, whatever label we want to put that on it, right. It tends to decrease the frequency becomes, you know, fewer and far between, you know, those kinds of things. And so I, again, I think it's just really hopeful to hear that you've experienced that as well in, in your practice that, you know, it is possible to kind of come at it from, from a sideways or a backdoor direction. I, I usually talk about because it can be really scary and, and, we always talk about in, in our world with food addiction, right? We're kind of like the last house on the street. Like we're the last stronghold. And when we're asking people to show up in a seemingly scary world, I mean, let's be honest, it can be very scary at times. And our anxiety is there telling us alert, you know, danger, Will Robinson, like things are scary. And we're now asking you to let go or give up, you know, your armor, which comes in the form of sometimes a substance use disorder, sometimes, you know, self-harm behavior, sometimes eating disorder, whatever it might be, we're asking a lot. And so when we can approach it, I just appreciate that you are willing to, to approach it from this other angle of like easing people 
its own exposure therapy in so many ways, right? Just easing people into it and seeing like when, you know, we can show up with tools and we do have the ability to take care of these things and we don't need the food or the alcohol or the marijuana or the caffeine or the nicotine or whatever that we can actually, you know, show up more complete and, and, um, authentic and, and we're okay. It may not be wonderful, but we're at least okay. So I just appreciate this conversation you've been willing to have with us today. I love that we've been able to kind of dip people's toes into these topics that I don't think we've covered, especially sleep as fully yet. And I just appreciate your willingness to chat with us about that today. But before we let you go, we have a couple questions. I'd really love to know what's next for you and where can folks find you? Sure. So what's next? I mean, that's always the question, right? We're always trying to do new things and challenge ourselves. I think trying to grow the podcast has been such a delight to interview so many amazing people on the podcast, including the two of you, which is terrific. People should check that one out. And so I think bringing more and more people on the podcast that can talk about, I have someone I'm speaking to today about menopause and how it can affect our brains and affect our ability to, you know, executive functioning, things like that. And having people on there talking about other, you know, palliative care, geriatric psychiatry. So that's coming up. I'm trying to do some writing. I'm working on a book about women and guilt because I think so many of us are drowning in it, myself included. And so working on that and trying to kind of, I'm connecting with the publisher about that. And they can just find me at thereflectivedoc.com. My podcast and writing is there. And I try to just get information out there. You know, people in the media have been reaching out for interviews about different mental health topics. I love it. Like, please reach out to me because I want to be getting the word out about some of these areas. So that would be how they could reach me. Great. And we do have a signature question. We kind of frame it for each guest we have. So for you today, it is... If you could tell a younger version of yourself something about mental health, mental illness, mental wellness, and how we treat it in ourselves, what would you say? That's a great question. I think that so many of us are trying to change things outside of us, trying to change people in our lives, trying to change situations, doing the geographic cure of I'm going to move and things will get better. And I think I would tell myself back then that you really have all that you need within you. And that if, you know, we want your mind to be on your side, your mind should be on your side, right? And if you can get it there, then you can really do just about anything. So I would tell my younger self, like anxiety that you've experienced or depression you've experienced is not you. It's a part, it's something that's been affecting you and there's treatment for it. There's relief from it. And then you can go and help other people do the same. So I think that would inspire the earlier me that was like, what am I doing? And why am I going through medical school and beyond? Thank you so much, Jennifer, for being here today. It's been such a lovely conversation with you. Thank you for having me. This has been such fun. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar-Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.